0: Before we start today, I want to introduce a new sponsor to the podcast Certified Site Safety. This is a company that I am proud to recommend for patients of mine and anyone else seeking help in evaluating mold and other toxins that might be present in their home. If you've listened to a prior podcast of mine, Is Your Home Killing You? You know that I interviewed Joe Reese, who is a true mold detective. Joe evaluates homes and has saved many of my patients from toxins in their home by evaluating them and teaching them how to remedy it. If you see or smell any effects of water damage in your home, Joe and his team at the Certified Site Safety are the team that you want. Their website is www.certifiedsitesafety.com, and Joe welcomes calls to even his cell phone, nine one four. 437-5454. So many of us don't know where to turn when our home is making us sick. Now you know. Please contact Certified Site Safety and Joe will help organize his team to remedy your problem. everyone to the smartest doctor in the room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Anxiety. Let's be honest. Everyone has been affected at one point in their life or another. I mean, I can tell you even today, there was a lot of anxiety going on just trying to get this podcast done. We'll mention that later on when I introduce my guests. But, you know, anxiety, whether it's losing a job, God forbid, losing your health, losing a loved one, these are just some of the areas where anxiety can rear its ugly head. I've also seen in my own medical practice, so many young people with severe anxiety as they confront an uncertain world where their job can change every year, their place of residence can change. And of course, and I know this because I have two young sons in their 20s, that they're worried about their future. You know, what what's it going to be like? My guest today is one of the top experts in the world, Dr. Judson Brewer, who is not only an expert in this field of anxiety, but which is so great in his book, which I'll mention in a moment, admits to his own battle with anxiety and how he learned to cope with it, which is so important because, you know, when you walk the walk, there's nothing like that. Dr. Brewer is an internationally renowned specialist, also in addiction medicine, He is currently the director of research at Brown University's Mindfulness Center. Uh, A shout out to the Bruins. I'm a a Brown alumnus from class of 82, and uh, I love Rhode Island. Uh, He's also a professor of medicine at Brown's Public School of Health and Medical School. Now, he is also the author of the book, Unwinding Anxiety, terrific book, and also a prior book called The Craving Mind. His TED Talk, and this can blow you away a simple way to break a bad habit has been viewed 17 million times. So if there's anybody who can teach us something about anxiety, I think it's Dr. Brewer. So I'd love to welcome him to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, it's gonna be really exciting. I think we're gonna have a couple of areas where we have some common training and experience. And I I hope for the listeners, it's going to really bring things out. But I like to always start with my doctors, probably out of personal curiosity, how they actually found the field of their particular expertise. And I know, just I wanted to tell the listeners, this, this is interesting, you know, you're an MD, PhD, and that is like climbing the mountain of medicine. I mean, becoming a medical doctor in itself, between residency and fellowship training, a lot of years. But I mean, we know in the medical field, when somebody's an MD, PhD, they've already even taken more time to research an area. And I know, and this is where my question comes into you. I know I believe your PhD was in the area of my expertise in, in fellowship, like as an
1: immunologist, immunology. How did you end up as a neuropsychiatrist? <laughs> yeah, it's a great, great question. I would. It actually started in medical school when I started meditating just as a way to work with my own stress. And as I went through my MD/PhD program, I didn't really know what specialty I wanted to go into. And then, <laughs> the thing we joke about with MD/PhD programs is you do a couple of years of med school, and then you do your PhD for long enough to forget everything that you learned in medical school, yeah. and then you go right. You get thrown right back onto the wards in third year. So when I went back onto the wards after my PhD, I decided to do my psychiatry rotation as my first rotation because I was thinking, well, I'm not going to be a psychiatrist and I need to remember how to interview patients. So I might as well start here. You know, long story short, I started to see how everything that I was learning about my own mind through my own mindfulness practice, which I didn't actually learn in medical school, uh, was pretty applicable in in psychiatry, uh, not only with addictions, but with anxiety, with depression, with all these other things. And so it really prompted me to, and inspired me to shift from studying molecular biology and, you know, and, and all the immunological aspect of things. I was very interested in, you know, why we get sick when we get stressed. That was why I went into immunology. And so here I wanted to take that basic science and, you know, I'd learned how to think, I'd learned how to do experiments. But I really was focused on like, how can I apply this in in humans? You know, all this mouse work, you know, it's like we can... Publish great papers, we can get, you know, patent stuff that that we've discovered, but you never know that it's going to work in humans until you try it in humans. So here I decided to shift to doing human research, but also shift to studying mindfulness. And in fact, you know, it's pretty early in mindfulness days. I remember somebody in my residency training program saying I was going to kill my career by studying this, this fluffy rainbow, you know, candle handholding stuff called mindfulness This is in the mid aughts because there really wasn't any research on mindfulness at the time. But if you want to study a new field, it's great when there isn't a lot of research because you can you can get in on the ground floor. So I started started studying. You know, retooled to learn neuroscience, neuroimaging, clinical trials and all of that stuff during residency. I was at Yale where there's this program where you can get some protected time to to do research. So it was actually perfect as part of this neuroscience research training program that was was part of residency. And so by the time I became an assistant professor at Yale, I was able to start doing uh, as as a way to get started.
0: You know, it's interesting because what you bring out in your book and what you're saying now, and, and I know it in my own career, I, I've, I've told this on prior podcasts, you know, doctors are in pain also. And I think, of course, patients don't want to really you know know about that. They're, they want their doctor to be the healer. But when I was going through residency in New York and it was at the height of the AIDS epidemic, I was taking care of dozens of AIDS patients who were young men who were dying every week. This is before they really had medications to treat HIV and AIDS, and I started to develop chronic back pain. And I thought it was from just being up late at night, uh, or putting you know, IVs, bending over patients. But you know, as you know, I progressed through my training, and I was doing less of the physical work. You know, some of that pain still stayed with me, and I started to realize a lot of it was related, honestly, even to anxiety. You know, the anxiety of not getting stuck with a needle, anxiety that I couldn't do something to help that patient, and that. It's interesting what led me i mean my background's in immunology but i also do a lot of functional holistic medicine that's what led me and we'll talk about this in a little while to do some workshops with dean ornish who i interviewed about a month ago and also with john kabatzen who's also one of the really leading people as you probably know in mindfulness and uh so it's, it's really interesting how i i think for doctors like your own personal experiences tends to influence your career i think dean ornish said it best once i was at his retreat and he said He goes, you teach what you want to learn before you really become an expert. You know, you want to help yourself (laughs) and then you want to help all your patients. Anyway, let's go into anxiety because that's what our listeners want to know about. And I want to ask you this. I'm sure maybe you feel a bit the same way, like, you know, in medical school, a lot of studying, a lot of books and a lot of anxiety for those tests to pass. But, you know, I never liked definitions. Definitions to me were always very dry. I guess it's part of the deal. You have to define an illness. But I instead prefer analogies or comparisons. And I'll just give you my uh, example of, a, you know, some type of analogy for anxiety. But I'd love to hear yours. Like I've heard, maybe I've read this in a book somewhere, that someone said anxiety is like listening to a, a bad recording replaying in your mind over and over again. And it's really a question of shutting off the tape. In your experience with patients, how do you explain to them what anxiety is?
1: Well, one way that I explain it to them is I, I show them and we walk through some of the useful aspects of how our brains work. So for example, fear, everybody knows that fear can be helpful. And we all know that, so think of our survival brains are really good at helping us survive in the moment. If you look at the newer parts of our brain, like the prefrontal cortex and all of these parts of the brain that are involved in thinking and planning, planning is also helpful for survival, right? But when you mush those two together and you get fear plus the future, I think of anxiety as fear of the future because we start worrying about the future. But all of that's related to uh, our brains, you know, like uncertainty prompts us to get information. It says, oh, I don't know if this is dangerous or not in the present moment. Well, the problem is when we start taking that, I don't know if it's dangerous or not, and we extrapolate that into the future, we don't actually have crystal balls that work, right? We can't predict the future. We can try and we can plan for it. But the more we start worrying, the more we project that fear into the future, that's when we start to get really restless. So if you think of uncertainty, it prompts this restlessness that says, go get information. It's just like our stomach where it's empty and that that prompts a restlessness that says, hey, go get some food. Right. So you can think of information as food for the brain. When we don't have information, our brain says, I'm hungry you know, and, and especially if there's something that prompts us, hey, there's some uncertainty here, go get that information. That information that go get it has that restless, itchy urge that says do something. Now, the problem is we can't do something about the future because it's not happening right now. But our brains figured out a trick. They say, well, maybe I can just morph this, this thinking this planning thing and so we start worrying about the future so we form these mental behaviors of worrying that aren't actually that helpful for survival so that's that's kind of how i explain it to my patients as i bring these these known concepts together i think everybody gets you know they start nodding their head when i say oh yeah fear of the future that's anxiety and they say yes that's my brain
0: yeah that's that's a great point so we're gonna get to obviously some of the things we're trying to stay present is key
1: you know For
0: so many of the patients, I mean, the anxiety has a real basis to it. I mean, if somebody, as I mentioned in the introduction, if somebody loses their job, or if somebody's business goes under, you know, there's obviously that fear. How am I gonna, you know, feed myself or my family? And when somebody gets sick, you know, we and we've all been in that position at some point in our lives or will be. You know, you're like, well, who's gonna take care of me? How can I take care of the people I was taking care of? I mean, real, real fears. And of course, within a family. When there's discord, you know, and and every time you you know you're reading the papers, you know, someone brought up by parents with addictions or you know you know just difficult marriages, you know, these are real things that you know obviously can exacerbate anxiety. What do you tell your patients? You know, because I know you actively see patients that are in these kind of situations. I say, you know, God forbid, somebody comes to you, say, Dr. Brewer. I, you know, I'm, I just can't eat anything. I, I can't think, I can't sleep. I, you know, I lost my job. I was making $150,000 a year. I support three kids. I have a mortgage, you know, this is real. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how do you start to work with them? What do you say to them?
1: Yeah. So let's use the job loss as an example. So if I had a patient that came in and said, you know, I just lost my job using the scenario that you just described, the first thing I would do is I would I would sit down with them and I was I was taking the, their history. I would start listening for these elements of these habits. You know, what's the trigger? What's the behavior? What's the result? And so, for example, you know, let's say the patient comes in and they say, you know, I start thinking about, oh no, what if I'm what if I'm going to lose my savings? You know, I'm and burn through my savings. So I would I pull out a piece of paper and actually write down trigger, behavior, result. Right. And not even explain anything at that point and say, OK, let me get this right. Is the trigger, you know, these thoughts for the behavior of worrying, you start worrying about the future. And then uh, then I would ask, well, what's the result of worry? And typically what people report is, well, it actually makes me feel more anxious because they're, you know, they're perseverating. They're thinking about, oh, no, right. oh no, no.
0: That's, that's a great point. Right. The persever- perse- persevering.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that person. And then there I say, okay, so this trigger, and I draw an arrow, uh, leads to worrying. And then I draw an arrow, which leads to being more anxious, which and then I draw an arrow back to the trigger. And again, and I say, guess what, that's how all habits are formed, you know, these three elements, a trigger, a behavior and a result. So that worrying is actually just making you more anxious. And I'll let that sink in because <laughs> that stuff, you know, I didn't even learn that in medical school or residency that that anxiety can be driven like a habit loop, but th- that was actually been known back into the 1980s. Thomas Sporkybeck and others were talking about this. I just didn't, you know, I, maybe I fell asleep in that lecture or something <laughs> but anyway. So, so somebody's worrying, right? The first thing I would do is help them map it out because if we don't know how our minds work, we can't possibly work with them. I think
0: that's so important. I once did a workshop, just to jump around with at Herbert Benson's group at, at Harvard, you know, where, you know, he did his, he had his program, you know, on stress reduction. And it was really interesting because he had, he was working with a lot of psychologists at the program. And it, it is interesting when you, you write down what you're anxious about, and then he would have you list the, the things that you're most fearful of,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, and then he had you write out, well, what's the probability of this, this and this, you know, it's amazing just by doing that writing it brings down your anxiety and your stress level i mean i know people think it's insane but it it really literally does you know it's like again when you're worried about numbers when to, i i still do this to this day like when i'm worried about even running my medical practice you know about the cost of my rent and this that too and i'm worrying about it i said well, wait let me write this down let me just see really black and white and then say well what's you know am i going to be able to make it this week is this going to work out and you it it does seem to reduce the anxiety to some degree right
1: yeah yeah it certainly can yeah. so the you know the other thing that i like to think about is well how do our brains form habits in the first place and can we actually capitalize on that power to help our brains you know to use our brains as compared to fight against our brains so one thing i look for is to see if our my patients are trying to fight themselves where they're just trying to you know, shove these thoughts in the closet or, or you know, uh, just not have those thoughts, you know, the, the just stop it type of mentality, you know, uh, it'd be great if our willpower really worked. You know, if I could tell my patients, you know, somebody comes in, they want to quit smoking. I could say, just stop it. <laughs> you know, somebody's overeating. To do. Yeah. Like,
0: you know, they said this is their, their big speech, you know, close the door, sit down in the seat. I'm going to give you a lecture. Right. And unfortunately, you know, better than anyone that's not always very successful.
1: No, not at all. And there's actually a great Bob Newhart skit that is worth watching from the 1970s called Stop It. Um, So (laughs) if anybody wants a good laugh, they can go check that out where he basically goes through that, that scenario. So this is this is no, you know, back in the 70s, Newhart was joking about this, but he jokes about it because that's what a lot of therapy is about, which is, you know, just try to capitalize on your cognitive control and all of that the problem is if you look at it from a neuroscience perspective, that's the first part of our brain that goes offline when we get stressed or anxious. So it's really hard to tap into that part of our brain even if it's really good. It's really hard to tap into that when we're stressed or anxious. So can't really rely on these these newer parts of our brain, you know, if you think of it from an evolutionary perspective, but we can rely on our habits. Why? How do we know that? Because that's what we fall back into when we are stressed or anxious so why not form the habit or use that habit forming process itself to unlearn habits so for example i my labs done studies we have this app called eat right now where we help people it's a mindfulness training to help people with stress and emotional and over I'm sorry what's the
0: app again cuz i remember reading the book it's really important
1: oh yeah it's called eat right now Eat Right Now. Oh, Eat Right
0: Now. Oh, okay. yes. They don't get another app in there too.
1: This yes, awesome. we have an app for anxiety called Unwinding Anxiety.
0: Unwinding Anxiety, right. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah. So the Eat Right Now program is really based on this neuroscience principle of awareness. So if the only way you're going to change a behavior is through awareness, and, and that specifically is through updating the reward value of a behavior. So let's use eating as an example, and then maybe we can use worry as well. So if somebody habitually overeats and they're not paying attention, they're just going to keep habitually overeating. So we embedded this tool, we call it the craving tool in the Eat Right Now app. And what it does is it brings people into the present moment. So they pay attention as they overeat. And in one study that we just published, it, we found that it only takes about 10 to 15 times of somebody paying attention as they overeat for that reward value to drop below zero And for them to start changing their behavior so we can see real effects relatively quickly when we bring awareness in and with worrying so let's go back to this scenario you know what would i do with my patient who's lost his or her job and is worrying about their future well i would bring that same principle in and i would say you know when you worry map it out map out that loop and then zoom in on the that cause and effect relationship What do you get from worrying? And ask yourself this simple question, not intellectually, right? And you can ask it intellectually. Worrying doesn't really get us anywhere. You know, it doesn't doesn't get us a job. It doesn't keep our family members safe. It doesn't fix. Yeah. And in fact, it makes it harder for us to think into the future. But we can actually look in the present moment and see that worrying just makes us anxious. And when we can see that relationship, that's why this whole process is called reward-based learning, because if it's rewarding, we're going to keep doing it. And if it's not rewarding, we're going to become disenchanted and stop. And so if somebody pays attention when they overeat, they become disenchanted because they see it doesn't really feel very good. If they pay attention when they worry and they see it's not getting them anywhere and it's just making them more anxious, they start to become disenchanted with the worry itself. So that's the second step that I take in helping folks work with anxiety the third step last step is what i call finding the bbo the bigger better offer so again our brains they're going to pick behaviors that are more rewarding than others that's how our brains work so why not find something that's more rewarding than worrying for example and something that's always available it's not like we have to you know take a benzodiazepine and then become dependent on taking benzodiazepine you know when we're anxious I, what about finding something intrinsically rewarding? So, here, this goes back to the mindfulness principles as well. You know, the mental behavior of being curious feels better than worrying. So, when we're worrying, when we're anxious, we can either worry or we can start to explore what it feels like to be c- curious about what that worry, what that anxiety feels like in the moment. And so we can notice, oh, curiosity feels better than worrying. And curiosity also helps me see that anxiety is not so big, bad, and scary as I thought it was because I've just been running away from it. So in this sense, I love this phrase, the obstacle becomes the way. So here, when we're anxious, instead of running away from anxiety, that obstacle of anxiety or worry can actually become the way where we can learn how our brains work and we can also learn to work with our brains because we start to see, oh, I can actually be with these physical sensations. This curiosity helps me turn toward them rather than running away from them. And then we can generalize that to, to the rest of our life. One example, and then I will stop my diatribe. Oh,
0: this sounds terrific. Okay. We,
1: did a, we did a study with anxious physicians. So we uh, with this Unwinding Anxiety app, when we first developed it, I wanted to... St- study the the most the population that was the hardest to work with and so of course i thought of my profession we are really we're,
0: we're terrible <laughs> yes
1: we're terrible patients we're we try to appear like
0: we're really super confident confident you know people to look up to and under not underneath is a whirling anxiety
1: yeah and we're you we're overworked we're burnt out and all right. of this stuff so we recruited, it was actually the easiest study, I, I, the easiest recruitment that I've ever done for any study. It only took a single email from the CEO of a hospital system to get all the worried subjects that we needed, uh, worried, anxious physicians. Long story short, uh, after three months of them using this Unwinding Anxiety app, we got a 57% reduction in generalized anxiety disorder seven wow. scores. Wow. 57. Yeah, that was pretty striking.
0: Because people don't appreciate It's not like, you know, a lot of sometimes other illnesses, not to make that sound easy, but anxiety, again, when you're dealing with something psychological, that's not easy because that you can maybe get a blip and they get but then they're right back to where they were before.
1: Yeah. Yeah. If that were a medication, a non-addictive medication, that would be a blockbuster drug. Right. So the other thing, though, and this goes back to what I was talking about in terms of generalizing our knowledge we threw in some burnout questionnaires in the study. Didn't mention the word burnout at all. We just threw in a couple of Maslach burnout inventory items. And one thing that we wanted to confirm was this: uh, this supposition that anxiety and burnout are correlated, because nobody had actually done a study on that. You know, here's a shocker: yes, they're they're very highly correlated. Uh, but the other thing that was surprising to us was that we got a fifty percent reduction in depersonalization. You know this this one aspect of burnout, uh, and we got a twenty percent reduction in emotional exhaustion, which actually highlights the difference between these individual factors: the callousness, the depersonalization, more of an individual protective factor, whereas the emotional exhaustion is probably more of an institutional factor, where we're treated as RVU robots. You know, like you yeah, just have yeah. to, it's you've got to keep your productivity up, the the profit over patient thing. So here we could we could help people. Start to see how their mind works. They could work with their mind, not only reduce their anxiety, but also re- reduce certain aspects of burnout. Last thing I'll mention is, of course, you know this was a single arm trial with physicians. Maybe physicians, or well, we all like to think we're special. Uh, so we did a randomized controlled trial with people with generalized anxiety disorder, and so they got their usual care, they got that plus this unrunning anxiety app. Here we got a sixty seven percent reduction wow. in anxiety. So well,
0: they even did better than the doctors.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So usual yeah. care, they did, you know, they got a 14% reduction, which is better than nothing. And you'd expect, you know, it's about, that's in line with the number needed to treat with medications, which is 5.2. Yeah. Um, the number needed to treat for the app was 1.6. Wow. Yeah.
0: You know, it takes me to something else I wanted to ask you about. Um, and I don't remember if you mentioned this in the book or not, but I thought about it because it's something that changed my life. You know, it's the question of personality type. Uh, It used to get thrown around about introverts versus extroverts. And a book that changed my life was Susan Cain's book, Quiet. And the reason it changed my life, because boy, when I started reading those pages, I saw myself jumping almost out of the book. I I couldn't, it was a, a, a page turn. I couldn't stop reading it. And I realized for the first time in my life, and this was maybe about five, six years ago, why I used to get so anxious, feel awful going to parties, you know, I'm talking about like weddings and you know, bar mitzvahs and any kind of big social environment. And I realized when as I read the book, you know, I'm a classic introvert, even though some of my patients would never believe that, but I am. <laughs> I had to, yeah, you know, work on this really hard. That you know, for me, I prefer being in my own mind. If I go, if I go for a bike ride, I don't want to go with a group of people. I just want to go on the road. You know, if um, I love reading a book, you know, things of that nature, just my, you know, I I don't, I like people, but I prefer being introverted. And I realized that these parties where everybody's like in the mixers, you know, and they're all like, it's it's almost like a speed dating. You know, you bounce from one person to the next. This made me very anxious. So I had to design strategies for myself because I didn't want my wife getting mad at me. Like, why are you having such a horrible time at this wonderful party? you know, and I didn't understand it myself. And I guess, you know, I developed strategies over the years, like where I find one individual who like I know, or maybe I want to meet and I will sit in a corner and talk with them for a while until they're bored of talking to me. But it's, I think, I guess my point is, I want to hear your thoughts on this, is that almost like knowing yourself and obviously extroverts have their own problems. You know, like I know somebody who's a classic extrovert; he just can't, not be at a party. I mean, if he's by himself, he's anxious, Yeah, you know, or if he's just with one or two people, he's not really happy. So do you think that is a key thing in, in dealing with your anxiety? I mean, no matter what the causes of what your personality type is.
1: Absolutely. So if we don't, if we don't know ourselves, you know, how can we possibly work with ourselves? So I think that's very related to knowing how our minds work. So if we don't know, what our anxiety loops are so for example you know your triggers could be going to these parties and then your coping mechanisms you know your coping mechanisms could be certain things if you don't if you can't map that out it's really hard to work with it and same could be true for an extrovert
0: yeah so yeah that's interesting okay i want to move to the next thing which is obviously really the the core of your work and as i said influenced my life, but it's very intimidating to people. And I'm going to talk about meditation. Mm. And I know, as I mentioned, when I was going through my residency under super amount of stress, and then I went to my fellowship and still I was, again, it was an immunology, infectious disease and allergy. And I still was in this world of where dealing with very sick patients. And then I went into private practice, which had its own Of its anxiety, (laughs) running a practice and actually being responsible for people's care, not having somebody overlook my shoulder and say, "Oh no, no, do it this way," and it led me to uh, Dean Ornish, who I I was fortunate enough, after waiting a year, to have him on my podcast, and uh, we had a lot of fun. But I'll just share this with you, and I want to hear your opinion. You know, before I went out to his retreat, I was actually thirty. Four or five years old, and I went with my wife, who was pregnant. She should have divorced me then, but <laughs> we went through his retreat that he does with patients, you know, who had heart disease. And I was, you know, and I before I went out there, I studied his vegetarian diet, and I started to do it. Uh, he had exercise; that was easy. I always liked sports, but then there was this meditation part, and I was like, "What is this?" You know, I mean, this is this this like you know weird Eastern religion stuff? And I started reading about it. And I was like, I still don't get it. I just, you know, and I guess what I, I laugh about, it, it's like when I used to read books about tennis, about topspin. I mean, until you hit a ball with topspin, you don't understand what topspin is. Yeah. So when you meet your patients and you obviously you run the mindfulness center at Brown, how do you present it to them that this is going to help them?
1: Well, my own experience struggling with meditations really helped inform how I approach this and how I talk to them. And it's also, and my research has also informed this as well. So I'll say, I remember the first time I went on my uh, my first seven-day silent meditation retreat. It was in medical school. And I remember about day three, crying uncontrollably on the shoulder of the retreat manager because I was thinking, I can get into medical school, but I can't pay attention to my breath. What is wrong with me? Right. right. <laughs> right. right. Crying uncontrollably. So it, it took me about 10 years actually to figure out that I was just taking this Western just do it mindset and applying it to mindfulness right. and just thinking, you know, I just have to force myself to pay attention more. I just have to force this in that. That's not how mindfulness works. It took me a while to figure that out. I'm sure my teachers were probably beating their heads against the wall. Like, okay, this guy, you know, he's just not getting it. So that really, that in combination with some of the research findings from my lab really illuminated how I understand it and also changed my entire approach to working with it with my patients and also in developing these digital therapeutics. So one early clue was this smoking study that I had done? I, uh, you know, in in early in my career, where we uh, compared mindfulness training to cognitive therapy, and we'd actually gotten five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. And as part of that, we were looking, trying to figure out the mechanism, like what what was the active ingredient here. And so we had people report on, you know, on a daily basis how much they did formal meditation, you know, like sitting meditation, walking meditation, that type of thing. And we also had them report on their informal practice, like when they brought in awareness as they were smoking a cigarette. And what we found was that the informal practices moderated the effects much more strongly than the formal practices. Both were correlated with reductions in smoking and and quitting, but the informal practices were much stronger. And that made me rethink the entire approach. Right. And so I started looking at that and I started thinking, well, of course, if you have an urge to smoke a cigarette, you can't just pull your car over and meditate on the side of the road. You've got to work with it in the moment. And historically, there's actually quite a few traditions that suggest really focusing on moment to moment experience. You know, I remember one teacher saying, you know, if you can't pay attention for 30 seconds, why should you sit in 30 for 30 minutes to meditate? So let's start with, you know, this moment, this moment, this moment. And I had this aha moment when I started to really understand how it's really about bringing this curious attitude to the, to whatever the moment is, whether you're meditating or not meditating, that that curiosity is key. And then I saw, suddenly saw how all it, all it fits together. So the Reward-based learning is based on how rewarding something is. Curiosity is more rewarding than worry, for example. You know, curiosity helps my patients ride out these cravings. And so, and that's what drives changes in reward value. So they can start to develop the habit of being curious, which is what mindfulness is all about. So instead of saying you have to sit down for 30 minutes to meditate and then you'll be a good person or your brain will change or whatever... I say, Hey, take a moment and notice how good it feels to be curious about something. Uh, take a moment to notice how good, you know, what it's like when you smoke a cigarette and they realize that cigarettes taste like crap, you know, and they start to see how their mind works and they start to change that behavior to the point where they are starting to become more habitually curious. Why? Because it feels good. And so now I really focus on in the moment, like, okay, what are you struggling with? If they're struggling with something, it's going to be a pain point for them. So they're going to be motivated to look for a pain reliever. And the nice thing is that the, uh, the curiosity is, is pretty much a universal aspirin in the sense of getting, you know, when we're getting in our own way, it's a great way to help us step out so that, and also help us really pay attention to whatever we're doing so that we can get the reward value from being curious and also see the reward of stepping out of these old habits. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. You know, I think about, as I said, people who influenced my life. I was going to ask you in a moment who's influenced yours. You know, when I, when I went out to Dean Ornish and as I said, that was the first time, you know, we sat and we did in a groups, we did meditation. And one of Dean's main things, because he was very relatable the way he did stuff. He says, meditation is all about paying attention and so that was that I said I could pay attention you know and uh and then later on when I, when I did uh John Cavinson's workshop up in Omega Institute John runs great workshops too we had only one day of silent meditation that was pretty intense <laughs> um seven days I can't even imagine but you know he and then he took a different step he said meditation is paying attention to your breath which again almost anybody can do and I I, you know, Dr. Brewer. I tell patients, well, I tell you, sometimes I have people come into my office, and we have to take blood and do certain things. And hopefully, some of them tell us ahead of time and go, "I'm not really good with needles because I've been out there on the floor before." We know it, but the ones that have told me that they are, what we typically do is we lay them down on the exam table, and I have them do belly breathing, mm-hmm. and you know, right away they start to realize that they relax. And again, I take that from the, again the mindfulness training I did with with John Kabat-Zinn, and you know, so I, what I want to get across to the listeners is, as you were just really saying, there's a lot of different ways to be mindful. It doesn't, you know, there is, and there's what is called walking meditation, which I had never heard of till I did John Kabat-Zinn's workshop, and I found it so fascinating. I, to me, it's one of the hardest things to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, when you're actually taking very small steps to not go too fast, minding washing your feet, but yet staying in the moment. But the, I'd like to ask you about a couple of other things too. You know, I've, I talk about this with with patients very delicately, but I tell them, you know, prayer can be a form of meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, journaling can be a form of meditation. Does that, you know, because again, when you have to find different ways to get people to relate, do you find those equally as effective?
1: Yes. So I would say you can, you can think of meditation as being a small circle within a much larger circle of mindfulness, right? So prayer, for example, can help somebody stay very, very grounded in the present moment. So prayer, you know, can fall within that that general realm of mindfulness, which is really just awareness and curiosity. So prayer, you you can think of all of the things that can really help us stay present and curious, not, you know, help us get out of our own way. So it's, it's really, you know, meditation is just a small circle within that much larger circle, which includes things like prayer.
0: You know, again, I I, without getting ever religious with patients, you know, and if I share something with them, I'll tell them again, you know, in whatever my battles with anxiety, or something difficult happens to me, I I do lean a little bit on my faith. And one of the lines that I've always loved was probably from some, you know, 16th century rabbi or something was what comes my way is for my benefit. And and I know, and a lot of times in life, there's obviously some really difficult things. And of course, whatever happens to me or my children, my family, you know, or patient, it's difficult, I'm, I'm hurting. And, you know, when I sometimes re- remember to, re- when I remember, you know, to, to stay mindful and repeat that to myself, it brings my anxiety down lower, and I'm able to think clearer. And I think for any of the listeners, sometimes if you re- reflect back on your life, and you look at something as horrible as it may be been a divorce, you know, a loss of a loved one, loss of your, that job, And then later on, you're like, oh, my God, I I met this other person, changed my life. I mean, Mm -hmm. life takes you down this unexpected journey. And I think that's like you're saying the curiosity comes into play because you're able to say what, you know, as horrible as this is right now, what about like five to 10 years from now? I, you know, I'm in a whole different place.
1: Yeah. And I would say we can even bring that into the present moment where that, you know, it's the, oh, no, oh, no, I lost my job. Oh, no, my relationship's going poorly. Oh, no, something just happened. If we can bring some curiosity in, that changes the inflection and changes how we approach it. So, oh, no, if we can just dial that into, oh, what that oh indicates is that we're starting to be curious and that oh can say, oh, well, this is different than I expected or wanted but this is what's coming my way, you know? So, oh, what can I learn from this? As you point out, what this brings it into this is for my benefit realm. Oh, because when we're oh knowing, we're just closing down, turning away, denying what's happening. I like that. Yeah. I
0: think the inflection really is effective.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's a natural way to awaken curiosity that and if people aren't into owing, they can they can hmm. You know, because that <laughs> awakens curiosity. I like that. I'm going to
0: use that. I want to get to something else too, you know, along with obviously meditation. You know, we're both medical doctors and I, I have this like kind of, I, I I borrowed it a little bit and I, I kind of transformed it on my website to a bit money. So I said, a real doctor can write a prescription because, you know, there are a lot of people that call themselves doctors, you know, <laughs> basically, well, okay, are you a real doctor, but a really good holistic doctor doesn't need to. But And here's my big, but there are times, especially I see young patients beyond distraught, um, they're not eating, their health is just deteriorating. And I will quietly, carefully say to them, you know, I think there is some medications that you need to take and and we'll work with you together and and doing other things to help yourself. just to, whether it's to hopefully raise those certain neurotransmitters so that you get to be a better place where you can think more clearly What's your thoughts with that? And when when do you decide? You know, because I, I think a lot of people have such a negative connotation of antidepressant, anti-anxiety medications, but in some ways they are, you know, miracle medications, you know, that they give people that chance to get off the floor and and try to fight.
1: Yeah. So I would say for some people, these truly are. Life changing drugs, and to those folks, I tend to think of it as you know. I talk to them about, well, this is a brain vitamin. You know, your brain needs. I love that's
0: exactly I call it vitamin serotonin. You know, yeah, yeah. There you
1: go. Uh, But if you look at it, you know, the number needed to treat is over five, so it's like twenty percent of folks are going to really show. This is for anxiety. Are going to show significant reduction. So some people really, really benefit from medications. Everyone really benefits from knowing how their mind works so they can work with it. So here, you know, I'll often do a med trial, but it, you know, it's really important to really know how our minds work. And I, you know, I approach that differently with different patients, but all of it in the service of like, how can we help them know how their mind works? And, in that little knowing, how can we help them start to lean into working with their mind instead of running away from it?
0: Well, shouldn't it almost, I guess, be required? And I don't know if HMOs, insurance companies are open to this, but if somebody goes on a medication that they should do some type of therapy, and I don't know, again, I don't know your thoughts about cognitive behavioral therapy, which is very, that's what I did some of the training at Dr. Benson's. He had a lot of cognitive behavioral therapists working there. I mean, because again, yes, essentially a lot of things you're talking about, identify what, you know, what's troubling you, come up with solutions, change a little bit how you, you know, as you, you mentioned in your book, Unwinding Anxiety, how you change your response instead of just being reactive, getting angry or mad or sad, you know, to say, okay, well, what's what's the, what's the plan here? What am I, you know, how do I get out of this situation or get to a better place?
1: Mm-hmm. So certainly as a therapist, you know, I'm probably biased into saying, well, you know, I think therapies can be helpful. One of the issues from a public health standpoint is that you know the good therapists are all booked up <laughs> yeah <laughs> and and in general therapists it's hard to find a therapist hard to get into therapy and hard you know it therapies honestly it's it's a priv- privileged thing if somebody's working you know if they're a single parent working three jobs when are they gonna have time for therapy so I think this is where, you know, I've been trying to approach it slightly differently where we've been, you know, for the last decade, actually, my, we've been looking at these, you know, digital therapies. we actually started playing with these five years before the term was even invented, you know, it's like, how can we provide quality evidence-based care for people, no matter where they are on their own schedule and at a very low cost, you know, so it's not a a big copay or, you know, a lot of therapists don't even take insurance Uh, A lot of people don't connect with therapists, you know, so how can we try to do the most that we can for the most people? And I think, so certainly, you know, for some people, therapy can be very helpful. I would say, you know, this it's a whole new ballgame now in terms of exploring the realm of digital therapeutics. It's pretty early on. There's only like 0.6%. And I say 0.6% of digital therapeutics have even been studied and even fewer of them show, you know, efficacy in the realm of this is worth paying attention to. So I think down the road, you know, we have to be patient with this in general. You can't just, oh, here's an app. Somebody said there it's based no, on no. science. You up
0: such an important point, I guess, but I didn't even think about we would talk about this today. You know, in my own practice in New York City, it's crazy since COVID, but even now, post, relatively post-COVID, about 50% of my day is doing Zoom consultations, you know, because I and I have patients all over the country who do this educational because they have these Chronic medical conditions, they want my expertise. And I'll tell you the fascinating thing, but you brought up something else that I sort of thought about but didn't think through. So, the great part about it is first of all, we're not masked, you know, like you and I are not now. It's great. I get to see their face and their emotional expressions. And we get to go in detail, just as if they were sitting in the office with me, you know, because it's not anything interventional at that point. It's just really evaluating whether I can help them. Then they decide if they're going to fly into New York for treatment. But, and this is the big but, and especially obviously for, in, you know, in psych, in psychiatry and psychology, there is something, you know, we all know this whole Zoom fatigue at the end of these kind of meetings, we're all kind of a little bit tired. There's just something missing in the energy that gets transferred or, you know, again, also when I'm sitting with a patient who's telling me something extremely emotional, the fact that if I can sit there and be there with them, I don't know, I can't, you know, this is not, we can explain in medical terms, you know, that, that empathy that a patient could feel from a doctor. Do you find that that's an issue with, again, you know, psychiatrists, psychologists doing these Zoom sessions? Is it is it a more of a, an issue?
1: Well, I've been doing virtual clinic for two years now. And so it's been really interesting to see the pros and cons of it. I was pleasantly surprised, especially because, I, like you're saying, I cannot be masked. And so that's really critical. That's, yeah, that's huge. So that piece far outweighs seeing my patients in person masked when they're, you know, we're typically in a small office and they're probably, they're thinking, how's the ventilation in this old hospital? (laughs) You know, it's not very good. So that piece just helps people ground a little bit, you know, so, but that's just, that's more of an infectious thing. But pointing to what you're talking about, we can spread emotion from one person to another. It's called social contagion. You know the emotional contagion piece of that, and a lot of that comes through body language. So while I don't think a hundred percent of it is transmitted through a two-dimensional surface, I would say we can get a whole lot just from facial and body, you know, upper body uh, uh, body language. So depending on the circumstance. It's you know it's better than nothing. I I think there is something to being in the room with somebody that you can't mimic, and so that piece. And I don't think VR is necessarily going to do that for us. No, <laughs> no. Uh, you know. So there. You know, I would say we're we're 90% of the way there. And there are a lot of benefits, certainly, you know, for my patients, again, who have children and they can't get childcare or they have to take the bus.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, the, the accessibility, they, what they used to say about being a good doctor, it was accessibility, affability, availability, whatever. So yeah, this t- technology has been a game changer. I'm going to transition to the last part of our, our interview today, again, and it's really been terrific for me. But technology, and this is the key thing, you know, technology, as we see, has had a dramatic effect on young people's anxiety levels. You know, yeah. unfortunately, TikTok, Facebook, you know, where everybody sees everybody having a good time smiling. you know, I guess I think I don't think the people who invented these these apps and everything anticipated this backlash, but I've heard it being called a dopamine machine. It decreases attention span. Um need for immediate gratification again, I don't know if you're a parent or if you were gonna advise a parent, what do you tell them I mean, do you think it's unreasonable to tell them to limit the time on these on these apps and and to get outside into nature and go for a bike ride and you know uh you know do something physical you know in the real world
1: yeah, so here's where knowing some neuroscience is really helpful. so if we just tell our if we just lock our kids' phones in the cupboard you know anything that's forbidden guess what our brain's gonna do uh
0: they were they are gonna find way they wanted more they're gonna go to their friend's house and say oh mom i'm going to my, my friend's house to play outside and they'll be on the on the computer the whole time right yeah
1: absolutely so yeah. It, it you know that part that p that approach while simple is ineffective what is effective is really focusing on this reward system so if we can if we can help kids and this is help ourselves as well starts with ourselves is really knowing and feeling and experience the joy for example of of movement of being in nature oh yeah when, when we can you know when we can move and when we can really feel into that and feel the groundedness and the joy and the contentment then that becomes our social contagion. We come back in the house and our kids are like, man, what were you smoking? I want some of that. You know, and you're like, I'm smoking fresh air. Let's go. You want to come have I, a I joke? Always
0: tell, I always tell young people when they say they're so busy, this day, I said, you know what? If, if, if I could have one wish, it's just to, to rent my 20-year-old body just for the weekend. <laughs> so I could play a couple of hours of tennis. I said, I would, I would do that. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. So I think that's the approach that can be taken. It's not about forcing ourselves to take that, you know, that phone fast, you know, because fasting just makes us want the substance more, but it's really about paying attention. What am I getting when I'm just endlessly scrolling versus how does that feel when I'm truly out, you know, connected, you know, for example, seeing, (laughs) seeing teenagers sit next to each other, you know, like bonding while they're, but they're all just staring at their they're phone. alright
0: They're all, they're all like, you know, they'll be in a restaurant and they're, they're texting each other instead of talking. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So just to, it's a cartoon. Right. So just modeling what it feels like to have that genuine contact and the connection, you know, our brain to our brains, it's a no brainer. it's just a matter of really, dialing into what that rewarding aspect is so that we can repeat it in the future. And that goes back to reward-based learning. Oh, actually putting my phone away and having a, a, a conversation with my friend feels better than just trying to figure out, find the right emoji.
0: Well, Dr. Brewer, I, again, I want to just thank you so much for your time. You reduced my anxiety today. You know, we had a couple of anxious moments. Uh, your book, Unwinding Anxiety, is terrific. I think it's a great read for anyone that suffers with anxiety and wants help. Is there any place we could give a handoff to where our listeners could follow more of your work and find out, you know, how to help themselves or a friend?
1: My website's simply drjud.com, D-R-J-U-D. And that's got a bunch of free resources. Talk about how to understand how your mind works, reward-based learning, all of that. It also, uh, if folks are interested in exploring some of these apps that we've talked about, they can find information about those on the website as well. So it's just drjudd.com.
0: All right. Thank you so much. This was terrific. And if our listeners enjoyed this, please leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. We really appreciate it. I think we've had so many terrific guests and in-depth discussions that hopefully can change people's lives.